you and your good friend get into an argument. And let's say that argument is about money or maybe a girl or a slight that maybe you made. Each of you then create your own narrative as a man as to what you think happened and why you feel that other person is wrong. An argument among friends can become serious or it can be resolved after one of the parties or maybe both agree they're wrong. Now let's elevate the stakes. You're in the drug world and cash and product is flying around the United States and something goes horribly wrong. Or even worse, you realize that those fed boys are coming for you. The stakes of that are immense. And I know for a fact when that happens, each person in that arrangement creates their own narrative and justification as to why they operated the way they did. As it relates to Khalil Abdullah and Jimmy Rosemont, the truth of what happened is anyone's guess. But there are a few things that I do know happened. Khalil decided he would testify against Jimmy in open court. And Khalil, who moved arguably just as much product as Jimmy, is now a free man. I think, I think you said when we hung up that you were going to talk about Khalil and and his his role in all yeah this. yeah i think um khalil um i think uh muhammad and then we can't forget winston harris okay you want to start with no, winston no, no. Or, or khalil um let's talk about khalil okay so Go ahead. so I, I was i was introduced to khalil um, somewhere around 2005, I believe, or so, by an imam who I met on Rikers Island um, called Imam Wali Farouk. Um, he was a, a, a chaplain on Rikers Island, and, and because I'm Muslim, he, um, me and him got pretty tight. A lot of times, these guys um, needed money for their, um, their mosque and stuff like that, and even... Though I was in jail, I was able to uh, assist them in, in certain ways. Um, so when I came home, um, I, I, I didn't have a problem. Like that was me trying to give back, and I would stay in touch with certain community members because he did a lot for the community also. So I would, uh, I would, I would stay in touch with him. Um, and then he introduced me to. Khalil, who had a security firm, um, his his security firm basically was uh, like you know how the, the the urban projects where they have guys, unarmed guys, pretty much patrol the projects and stuff like that. The yep. security firm kind of had those kind of contracts with the city and things like that. So when um. When I was managing game, there were times where I would ask him if he knew um, security guys in certain states that we were going, like legal security guys. Yeah. Sometimes he could assist, sometimes he couldn't. So we, we pretty much gained the relationship from there. Um, then in 2007, me and him had went to Mecca together. Um, and that was pretty bonding at that that um, when we got back he had came to me and asked me um, 
do I mind and please not to judge him if I put him with somebody in LA that um, might be able to, to sell some uh, marijuana to him. I didn't have really a problem with it because I was like, um, you know, whatever he's doing, he's doing on his own. And and we were pretty much in two different kind of fields. Yeah. Um, so I did introduce him to somebody in Los Angeles that he, he ended up, um, I guess, getting whatever he was getting and doing what he was doing. So me and him kind of got tight after that. Um, he built a relationship with some, you know, my brother and them out in Los Angeles. And um, I pretty much trusted him to a point of where, um, you know, sometimes me and him would have conversations. And like, and look, and like I said before, it wasn't that I never dabbled in the drug business with these guys. The only thing was I never was their leader. So what would happen is, let's just say if he was going to buy something, um, I would say, hey, here's some money. And if you can, um, turn it for me. But I knew he was dealing with the guys that I had put him with in Los Angeles. And so that was the relationship that we pretty much had. And so um, as time went on, you know, he was he started doing his own thing. I, I didn't really know what he was doing because I was traveling so much. I was out of the country most of the time. Or I would be out of New York and sometimes me and him would, would, would have conversations um, when I would be in New York. So when when um, when it started, so I didn't have a problem with telling them, look, man, you got to be careful coming around me because, the, you know, I see that these people are following It's they all over. And I know he was doing what he was doing. I don't know what happened to his security firm because I know from his testimony when he testified that he was, um, he... He had over 300 employees. Um, so I don't really know what ended up happening to that, to how that might have fell apart. But it looked like what he started doing was he was full-time hustling. So occasionally, again, me and him would, would meet up. And so I would tell him, like, look, these guys are all over me. I know you're in the streets like that. Be careful coming around me. I don't want what they're investigating me for to spill over to you guys. So, and I would occasionally tell them about Todd Kaminsky. I didn't have a problem with telling anybody who was investigating. I knew it was Todd Kaminsky only because he was pulling guys down. He was subpoenaing guys. He was subpoenaing um, different music people and they were building their case. And I, I didn't have a problem with it because I wasn't doing anything time when they were investigating me. You heard it. Jimmy says he dabbled in the drug game. And again, I know this might be parsing things a bit, but the legal system in our country is based on very hard and fast laws that are also based on very strict language. So let me break that down for you. If the federal government charged Jimmy with operating in the drug business the way they charged Khalil or Henry Butler or Tef, Jimmy would most likely have faced 10 to 12 years. 
That is why the charging mechanism of the CCE charge becomes such a weapon for prosecutors, such a major tool to really give people sentences of life or in upwards of 35 years. I've read the court transcripts and I could say without a shadow of a doubt, the government never proved that Jimmy was a drug kingpin worthy of the CCE charge. Jimmy isn't innocent. I've never stated that. And I know it's hard. Maybe some of you are saying, well, he's a drug dealer and why should I care what time he got in jail? Well, I would argue you have to care because this is a major issue that our country is currently fighting about as it relates to drug sentencing and the harsh drug laws for dealers. Jimmy, on many occasions, has stated if the government charged him correctly, he would have no problem doing his 10 years for the evidence provided at trial. I'm not a lawyer, but anyone who reads the court transcripts can see that the government overreached when they charged Jimmy. So, um, obviously he remembered Todd Kaminsky's name. And when it came down to it, when everything started falling apart, for instance, when Black got arrested, Henry Butler, when he was arrested, and there were some other guys who got arrested that was part of his crew that was arrested, he pretty much came up with the bright idea that at the time I didn't know it was only through his testimony that I later found out but uh, he comes up with the bright idea of uh, leaving some money for the for the DEA agents and let them and saying that it's my, my money and in turn hoping that they would get off of his tracks and stay on me um, so he was shipping the guy that I introduced them to, he was shipping them somewhere close to a million eight in cash. What he ended up doing to do a double whammy, he, he robbed the guy, took a million dollars out of it. He left close to 800 or 700,000 in the, in the rehearsal studio. He FedExed a letter to Todd Kaminsky and in his letter he stated, this is the guy in the music business, money, who you're investigating. And then he ended it with good luck. He also sent the same letter to the DEA telling them where the money was at and, and saying that it was mine. You have Khalil Abdullah now, who they claim is my lieutenant. And of course, he's going to dump down his role in, in whatever. Um, and all of the blame is on me. The thing that was so it made, was so bewildering to me was that he used close to eight hundred thousand dollars to prove his point to these people. So, it, and let me mind, let me remind you that never did they have surveillance of me giving money to Khalil, even though he was under surveillance. Never did they find fingerprints of any of the drugs. Any, any of the drugs that were found. Never did they have a recording of me and Khalil having a conversation in regards to drugs. Most of these guys couldn't even, couldn't even, didn't even know where I live. Also, you know, have a conversation with me in regards to anything. And I would have thought that at least have that kind of evidence. 
if you're gonna put a thousand kilos on me, at least have something that warrants a, a thousand kilo charge. At least find me near a shipment or have me talking about a shipment of that large amount, or even if it's a hundred In Jimmy's story, there's a piece of information and I need to be crystal clear on. The government of the United States and the prosecutors of the Eastern District in Brooklyn created an entity defined in their legal proceedings as the Rosemont Organization. Now, whether this organization actually existed, damned if I know at this point. As far as evidence, James Rosemont was never caught with any drugs on his person or in his house. He was never caught with any guns, and the IRS never charged him with any financial crimes, meaning they never tracked in a profound way ill-gotten gains from drug money. They never caught him talking on the phone on a wiretap selling drugs or moving drug money. They did have some audio evidence of Winston Harris with one kilo of cocaine inside of a car that Jimmy was driving. But the audio on that evidence is a bit hazy. In order to build a case, they simply created a high-functioning stage play and their star actors were Khalil Abdullah, Mohammed Tef Stewart, Henry Black Butler, Winston Harris, and Tony Martin. The above collective all sold drugs. The amount and quantities at this point are anyone's guess. And if you read the trial transcripts, it is all over the road. Numbers and estimates don't add up, and some math for the purposes of the trial is just too convenient. The so-called members of the Rosemont organization all signed cooperation agreements, and the way that worked was very simple. Khalil Abdullah, Henry Black Butler, Winston Harris, and Tef, all with their prior charges, were facing enough federal prison time that if convicted, they would just spend the rest of their lives in jail. So let me ask you as a listener, you committed a crime and the U.S. government came to you and presented two choices, which one would you pick? Spend the rest of your days being shuttled around the Bureau of Federal Prisons or let's sit down and let's craft a nice story about the work you did with Jimmy. And we don't really care too much about the nuances. We just want to know that Jimmy was your boss and Jimmy basically told you to do everything you did in the drug game. So the script to the stage play became Jimmy was the CEO. Khalil was basically the chief operations officer, and somehow Henry Black Butler was the source of Jimmy's drug supply on the West Coast. But hold on. It's always confused me because if Henry Butler was the source of the supply, the connect as they say, doesn't that mean that Henry Butler was the kingpin above Jimmy? That point I will expound upon in later episodes. Now back to the script. Mohammed Tef Stewart was actually Jimmy's muscle in the organization or middle management. In middle management, he was a worker bee who was all too eager to shoot up houses, cars, offices, blocks, whatever. And yet Tef, he wore an actual camera in his baseball hat and wore a wire and had his actual phone wired so he could tape Jimmy. Yet, in almost a year, Tef never was able to record Jimmy talking about any violence or any drugs. So isn't that a little weird? I'll let you make your own assumption. Lastly, Winston Harris, Tony Martin, Jason Williams, John Dash, these guys, according to the government, were Jimmy's worker bees and at his beck and call. So, all the names I just stated are all home, partying with their family, enjoying the rest of their lives, free men, walking the streets. Khalil, 
it can be argued, possibly sold more drugs than Jimmy. Mohammed Tef Stewart probably was involved in a number of criminal schemes. And Henry Black Butler, if he was the so-called source of supply as the government purports, that means he most likely was dealing with a Mexican drug cartel or drug runner that had way more access to hundreds of kilos of cocaine, but the government wasn't really concerned about that too much. Jimmy Henchman is who the government wanted for the headline. The New York Post, the New York Times doesn't write about the prosecution of Khalil Abdullah or Tef or Henry Butler. They write about Jimmy because Jimmy was the bad guy that they needed. The bad guy that gets you a career bump. Something you put on that old resume. Jimmy also was the right type of gangster they could sell to a jury. The jury of your peers who really only know about this type of stuff from watching Law & Order or The Sopranos. So in all of this, this elaborate stage play, the truth be damned, because in America, the truth is never as cool as the big lie. 